You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 5th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On today's programme, we begin in Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial has resumed. Then... To betray that trust by falsely pledging loyalty to the United States while serving a foreign power is a crime that will be met with a full force of the Justice Department. We'll find out how a US diplomat spied for Cuba for decades. And Laura Kramer will give us a roundup of entertainment news. What do you have for us, Laura? Well, George Santos' career in politics is over, but the saga continues. I'll have the latest on his new gig, why a young Donald Trump is being compared to Diana, (laughs) and we'll discuss why the British Museum just can't catch a break. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Pressure is mounting on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. UN and US officials have called on the Israel Defence Forces to avoid a repeat of the devastating impact that its operations in northern Gaza had on civilians, as the IDF expands its ground offensive in the south. Netanyahu himself is back in court facing corruption charges. The trial was postponed for two months during the state of emergency, declared when Hamas launched a cross-border attack on the 7th of October. The militants killed 1,200 people and seized 240 hostages, according to Israeli tallies. It's the single deadliest day in Israel's 75-year history. There's mounting evidence that many women were raped before being murdered. The Hamas-run Palestinian Health Ministry says almost 16,000 Palestinians have been killed in retaliatory attacks, almost 70% of them women and children. They say thousands more are missing and feared buried in rubble with about 900 killed since the truce ended on Friday. Nimrod Goran is a senior fellow for Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute and the founder of the Israeli foreign policy think tank, Mitvim. Uh, Nimrod, very pleased to have you with us today. I wondered if we could start with Netanyahu's personal problem, his trial, which resumed on Monday. How much attention is this case receiving in Israel? Thank you for having me, Georgina. The, the resumption of the case is not a, doesn't have immediate consequences, but it's an important political development. First, it uh, reflects and uh, reminds Israelis that their prime minister is already for more than three years going to court to face a trial on corruption cases. And while these were uh, stopped for a couple of months because the entire judicial system was put on hold because of the war, things are back on track and this is likely to continue. Uh, it wasn't an issue that uh, succeeded in toppling Netanyahu, leading him to resign until now. It did limit his capacity to uh, form coalitions because of many political parties not willing to sit with him, together with his other political problems because of the war. I think that could eventually be another component in leading to a political change in Israel. And so do you think a resignation is likely sooner rather than later? Uh, I don't think Netanyahu is currently planning on resigning. On the contrary, what we see him doing during the course of the war is uh, engaging in political survival. Uh, that leads to even more criticism about him or against him from people you know, within the Israeli electorate, including from his political base. People want to see the prime minister 
take responsibility on his failures, much like most of the military brass did until now, and want him to be focused on winning the war, not on doing political calculations. Mm. Now, of course, uh, Israel is coming under criticism from foreign governments uh, and the United Nations, which has been very critical about civilian casualties in Gaza. What has the UN said and how worried is Israel about losing international support? And we differentiate between what the UN is saying and what Western allies or regional allies are saying, because now, for Israel, it's important to be in line with uh, the international community. And Israel understands that having the support that it had during these last couple of months from international powers enabled it to conduct its military action and are key for it to continuing and working towards uh, achieving its war objective. The support by the American administration, by the EU officials, by heads of Western countries, the resilience proved by Israel-Arab relations, with the uh, relations continuing dif- despite the difficulties, those are things that Israel wants to preserve. They are built on an assumption that the objective of not having Hamas continue to govern Gaza uh, is a good one, and that countries support that. There are much concerns about how Israel is conducting its military operation. Is Israel, as much as it can, I think, is attentive, especially to voices coming from the United States and trying to balance between what it needs to do operationally and what the UN wants it to take into account, the US, sorry, wants it to take into account. Regarding the United Nations, there is also always skepticism in Israel about its role, its position. I found those were intensified after October 7th. There, there was criticism on how the UN is dealing with things, and I think the UN position is currently not one shaping what Israel does or does not. Mm. So the, we know that the IDF moved into Khan Yunus, uh, which they say is, is a, a Hamas stronghold. Now, many of the civilians that are sheltering there have already been displaced. Where are they going? And, and do you know if provision has been made for them for humanitarian aid and indeed a safe place? Uh, there is a conversation yesterday, I think the World Cabinet convened, uh, because of American requests to increase the amount of fuel that will enter the Gaza Strip uh, because of the humanitarian needs that will be on the rise given the resumption of, of the fighting. Uh, definitely fighting in the southern part of Gaza will be more challenging because of uh, the, the large population, not, not only the population that live there on a regular basis, but also those who fled uh, from the northern part of Gaza. So the population is very big. This is kind of a key zone for Israel in its actions to go after the Hamas leadership. Uh, and there are already all kind of attempts to map the Gaza Strip and create uh, notifications to the people according to specific zones that Israel will enter. Um, there is an attempt to do that. We didn't see it in the first part of the war by the IDF. Um, but how much will that uh, actually mitigate the suffering? We need to see, but definitely civilian casualties will be there, and that's unfortunate. I think what Israel would like perhaps to see is some ideas from the international community, at least those countries who support Hamas not ruling anymore, about what kind of actions could be taken to that regard, except for in case military action in the south of Gaza. Mm. Now, we know that um, hundreds gathered at the United Nations on Monday for a special session which was spearheaded by Israel's permanent mission to the UN. Now, this was to raise awareness of sexual crimes. There are many, many reports coming in of horrific rapes uh, upon Israeli civilians by Hamas militants, uh, often before these women were murdered. Why has there not been stronger international condemnation? And where is UN women on this? This is a very important thing for the for the Israeli society. You know, we had hostages coming back. We began to hear the stories of what they went through. We have other uh, witnesses and evidence of horrible things happening. Uh, and the sense among many in Israel that 
the international community or parts of it has moved on rather quickly on what happened in October 7th. So the need uh, by Israelis to, is to see some recognition uh, of what happened, of the horrors that Hamas did, of naming that as it was, of having people believe the stories coming out from Israeli women from the Israeli society, to see the international organization support Israel in its efforts to bring back the hostages and support those who suffered. All of those, by the way, could be done in parallel to criticism that is voiced on Israel regarding its actions. It does, it's not exclusive to each other. You can be pro-Palestinians and anti-Hamas. You can condemn Hamas for what he did and be critical of Israel of how it conducts the war. I think Israel would like to see more of that complexity on the international front with the issue of sexual violence now becoming a big part of that. Nimrod, thank you for that wonderfully balanced conversation. That is Nimrod Goran in Jerusalem. Now, here's Isabella Jewell with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. British Home Secretary James Cleverley is in Rwanda to sign a new migration deal after the UK's Supreme Court ruled a previous deportation agreement was illegal. London and Kigali had agreed for asylum seekers arriving in the UK without approval to be sent to Rwanda. The Nigerian army has admitted that one of its drone strikes accidentally killed at least 85 civilians in the country's northern Kaduna state. The Sunday night attack was part of a military campaign against Islamist insurgents. The victims had gathered to celebrate a Muslim holiday. Thousands protested across New Zealand on Tuesday against their new government's policies towards indigenous people. Maori demonstrators gathered outside Parliament and in city squares after the country's centre-right government pledged to review positive discrimination schemes and roll back the use of the Maori language. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Isabella. Now, the US former ambassador to Bolivia has been charged with spying for Cuba for over 40 years. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland. This action exposes one of the highest-reaching and longest-lasting infiltrations of the U.S. government by a foreign agent. Specifically, the criminal complaint alleges that for over 40 years, Rocha acted as a covert agent of the Cuban government. To that end, the complaint alleges Rocha sought out employment with the U.S. government that would provide him with access to non-public information and the ability to affect U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Well, that uh, is uh, the the U.S. Attorney General. Uh, John Everard is a former British diplomat who served as the U.K.'s ambassador to Uruguay, to Belarus and to North Korea. So he knows a fair bit about diplomacy. John, what more can you tell us about Victor Rocha and his crimes? Well, with 40 years, it seems, that he's been spying for Cuba. Uh, He was clearly a kind of moderately successful traditional diplomat. I mean, ending up as ambassador to Bolivia is perhaps not the height of everybody's ambitions. Um, but he was, must have worked in several parts of the, 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 the bits of the State Department that deal with Latin America and so would have been in a position directly to influence United States policy on Cuba. There's a lot about this case that we just don't know. How was he recruited? Why did he do this? And how, at the end, uh, was he still telling uh, the... the, the what we thought were, were Cuban intelligence agents, in fact were FBI undercover agents, that he was quite happy to uh, work for Cuba for another 40 years, which would have taken him to the, year, the age of 113, which is perhaps a little bit ambitious, but never mind. <laughs> uh, the longevity of the relationship is probably rather sad. There's a pattern in these things. And there's a saying in the trade, it's easy to start spying, it's difficult to stop. He was 33, it seems, when he started to spy for Cuba, 
perhaps motivated by ideology, uh, Cuba, the rebel state, and he as a Latin American, perhaps feeling a, a bit of anti-gringo resentment, uh, perhaps talked into doing this by the Cubans. By the time you have been spying for a few years, you're trapped. Uh, unless you are spying for a particularly benevolent intelligence organization, they won't let you go. And of course, the Cubans only had to, to pick up the phone and tell the State Department what was going on. And he had to spend the rest of his life in prison. And how did it come to light? That also is not clear. Uh, the formal court documents uh, lay out the charges, but they don't say uh, quite how they got to where they are. We know that part of it was a sting operation by the FBI. The FBI posing as uh, Cuban intelligence agents uh, got him to say things uh, into concealed microphones uh, that will doubtless come out in court, including, as I say, the, the promise to spy for another 40 years. Uh, but th there must be more to it than that. And we may discover more when the court case goes live. I mean, I wonder what failures there must have been in security vetting and how he could have got away with it for so long. Is there, is there an assumption in diplomacy that there will always be a security breach and you, you, have, to, you have to make provisions to stop them? No, quite the contrary. Uh, the assumption is that your colleagues are loyal and that you can trust them. And uh, the fact that he was doing this for 40 years will have shaken not just the security uh, officials of the United States, but also also fellow diplomats. I mean, he'd been sitting in open offices in the State Department, apparently working away, uh, promoting American interests with people who trusted him, probably liked him. They will be absolutely gutted to find that he was in fact a traitor. Mm -hmm. uh, how damaging is this to Washington's reputation? To Washington's reputation, one spy in a while is probably not that damaging. So when they come in clusters that you want to worry. How damaging is it to Washington's interests? We don't yet know. Uh, the State Department has said that over the next days, weeks, months, they said, they'll be working with intelligence colleagues to try to work out just how much damage Rocha has done. He'll have been able to do a lot more damage at some parts of his career than at others. Uh, I mean, as ambassador to Bolivia, his direct access to cables, to in information directly related to Cuba will have been rather limited. But he did, as I say, at various times work in the right bits from Havana's point of view of the State Department. And he was also at one point working in the US interest section in Havana, uh, so right in the thick of it. Uh, so those will be the periods, I think, on which the investigation will focus. I mean, how does security vetting in, in, in the diplomatic services work? Surely it's very fierce. Yes, yes, it is. I mean, you, you are hauled through the calls. Everybody that you know, uh, well, not everybody, but I mean, a large a large sample are, are questioned. Uh, what they say about you is cross-checked. And uh, if anything doesn't look right, uh, you will be hauled over the calls again. It's a long and very intrusive process. And uh, people, I mean, when I was vetted, uh, people who are and you were absolutely astonished at the lengths to which the Foreign Office went to make sure that I was, firstly, who I said I was. You can't always take that for granted. <laughs> and that I was actually uh, going to be a law servant of the Crown. Uh, and finally, John, what do you think uh, the influence of this will be on uh, the US relationship with Cuba? Probably minimal. Uh, it's again. I, I said this is a sad story. It's sad because of the, the plight that Roger probably has got himself into. Sad also uh, from the Cuban point of view. Telling that the CNA, that the the, the Cuban uh, information agency, has said nothing whatever about the case yet. A, a, a deafening silence. Uh, when he was recruited forty years ago, the world was a very different place. Cuba was a very different country. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union was still around, of course, and uh, they. Probably 
probably wanted to know a lot about U.S. policy to Cuba. As time went on, all that Cuba really worried about, especially after what they call the special period where the Cuban economy virtually imploded, uh, is how much money uh, they can get out of the United States. And Rocha probably wasn't that useful to them. So I suspect that in the end, Cuba will just shrug. Uh, Rocha, if he's found guilty, let's not prejudge the trial, uh, will disappear into a prison somewhere and the will go on. John Everard, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle's November issue offers a deep dive into the design industry, as well as our monthly global investigation of current affairs, business and culture. It's an issue that helps you see the details, gain focus. Here are three things that you'll discover between its covers. One, that the Czech Republic is packed with inspirational design outposts, both old and new. Second, that bustling Jakarta has become a hothouse of entrepreneurial prowess. Three, that there's nothing more valuable than sitting down with wise folk to gain their perspective on the world. In this issue alone, we meet with Raymo Ruffini, CEO of Montclair, architects Renzo Piano, Jeannie Gang and Shigur Raban, and the watch chiefs of Bulgari, Seiko and Van Cleef and Arpels. Discover all this and more in the latest issue of Monocle. Pick up a copy at your favourite newsstand or subscribe today at monocle.com slash subscribe. back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, today and tomorrow, France's Defence Minister is hosting the South Pacific Defence Minister's Meeting in New Caledonia. He'll also be in Australia, attempting to shore up relations after the loss of a major submarine deal in 2021. Cleo Pascal is a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for Defence of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region, and joins me on the line now. Cleo, which countries are represented at this meeting in Numea? So it's Australia, Chile, Fiji, France, of course, uh, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Tonga. Those are the actual delegates. So it's the the countries and the regions that have militaries. There are only three Pacific Islands that have militaries, uh, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, and Tonga. And then as observers, you have uh, the United Kingdom, Japan, and the U.S. So New Caledonia belongs to France. I wonder how much presence France has across the Indo-Pacific region. Substantial. And France has a, an enormous exclusive economic zone, one of the biggest in the world. And that's largely because of its possessions in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific Ocean. In the Pacific Ocean, it has uh, French Polynesia, which you know from the islands of uh, uh, Tahiti and Bora Bora. But it also has New Caledonia, which was the headquarters of the uh, American Pacific uh, attempts to retake that whole region from Japan coming up from the south, and uh, Wallace and Futuna. So it's, it is quite substantial, and it does have a military base, military outpost in New Caledonia, and it has a lot of defense sales across the region, which also ties it into um, the security architecture. Mm. So what is the French strategy in the Indo-Pacific? What would you say are the key priorities for the nation? <laughs> so they have we we did a, a some research on this when I was at Chatham House and what the what the French said was uh, essentially they'll sell better equipment to worse people than the Americans. I mean that's <laughs> very very blunt to them, but you know they want they want to they to bolster their defense sales. But the other things that they're very interested in are energy um, exploration and uh, and development. So Total is very uh, present throughout the region and also infrastructure development. 
Uh, and of course, the climate change has got to come into it too, hasn't it? It, it, that's a priority for the islands. So they'll, they'll bring it up uh, quite substantially. And um, climate change, you know, is obviously a real thing issue in and of itself. But it's also a justification from a defense perspective to deploy more in the region and to pre-position supplies. So uh, you get a lot of humanitarian assistance and disaster uh, response type exercises, which are, you know, functionally military uh, exercises, but they're more palatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously the island nations are represented at COP22. I wonder uh, what their strategy there is and how that's being backed by France. Uh, you know, to, to a certain degree, not to the degree that, that anybody would like. You know, as mentioned, everybody knows the French are involved in the, are involved in the energy sector. The other thing that I would just bring up, by the way, uh, is that while, while French have these three possessions, in the two big ones... Um, they're very strong independence movements. Um, and, uh, and there was just an election in, in New, New Caledonia. You know, we now have, uh, in French Polynesia, we now have sort of pro-independence leadership in both of those. So their situation is strong, but it's not secure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the situation with Australia has also been quite rocky. The minister's going to be trying to rebuild ties with Australia. How welcoming is Canberra likely to be? I mean, is France important to Australia? Yeah, they share a maritime border. I think a lot of what happened around the, the submarine deal was pantomime on the French part because they wanted to get you know, a, a, a bigger payout from the contract, which they had not been delivering on. But more to the point, they wanted very much to signal throughout the region that this was a political issue, not a technical issue. They didn't want people to lose faith in their subs. So there was a big pushing of the narrative that this was some Anglo-Saxon conspiracy to sideline the French uh, so that potential purchasers like, you know, like India or Indonesia wouldn't be put off the technology. Very, very interesting, Clear. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now let's round up the show with some of the day's culture and entertainment news. Our producer and entertainment correspondent, Laura Kramer, is with me in the studio. Uh, I'm sorry, I just can't wait to get to the bit where you said Donald Trump and Princess Diana in the same sentence. Can we start there? We can start there. So Georgina, one of my favourite actors, the Romanian, I do want to highlight he's Romanian, Sebastian Stan, is going to be playing a young Donald Trump in an upcoming film which is about his early years in New York during the 70s and 80s, Essentially, it looks like it's going to be called The Apprentice right now. It's not fully official. But we've just seen the first images of Sebastian Stan as Donald Trump when he's younger. And it's getting some mixed reviews from people. They're like, I'm conflicted. Sebastian Stan is a very handsome actor, I might add, Georgina. <laughs> and they're like, do I think I can see the Trump resemblance? But I think what it comes down to is the hair. And people are saying that him with the hair look 
he looks more like Princess Diana in the 80s than he does Donald Trump. So these images have really thrown me, I have to say. I'm not sure what to make of them. Uh, quite, quite extraordinary. Do we know much about the film, actually? Well, the film is going to is from the Iranian filmmaker Ali Abbasi. And like I said, Sebastian Stan is starring in it and is going to also star Jeremy Strong. So it's going to be looking at the, the real estate business and Donald Trump's relationship with his mentor, Roy Cohn, who's going to be played, by the way, by Jeremy Strong. Of course, we know him from Succession and many other films. And so, yeah, it's very exciting to see what's going to be happening with this movie. It's it's interesting. Is it going to be satirical? What can we expect? Sebastian Stan himself is actually known for playing. He's a, I think he's kind of a character actor. I don't know if he would classify himself as such, but he's played other real-life people, including Tommy Lee Jones most recently in Pam and Tommy. And so I'm very curious to see what his take is going to be on the Donald on the Donald. The Donald. <laughs> I can't do the voice. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> OK, let's talk about George Santos. So he, of course, is the ex-congressman, uh, chucked out in disgrace. He's calling himself former congressional icon. Ah, oh, it hurts me. It hurts. <laughs> so, yes, George Santos famously became the sixth person to be uh, the sixth lawmaker in the history to be kicked out of the House last Friday. And he's got his new career, though. It's OK. He's going to be appearing on Cameo. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's a platform in which people who are famous can leave messages and you can pay them to leave whatever messages. Well, not whatever messages. <laughs> we've, we've had a few instances of celebrities and people who don't know what they're saying say things that they shouldn't. And so actually this first came about a friend messaged me and he showed me a screen grab and at the time it was $75 that he was charging for the message. Clearly demand is high because it then jumped to $150 and it's now at $200. And you can have George a message from George Santos on this platform. And he he's kind of there's a video clip out there where he's addressing somebody off camera but the person he's talking to is called Megan. Clearly, we're supposed to think it's the Duchess of Sussex. Uh, and um, he, he, he's, he's telling her about, look, they can boot me out of Congress, but they can't take away my good humour or my larger-than-life personality. And it's just... <laughs> You know, at one point I considered getting one for Andrew Muller, a little message, but then I thought, oh, there might be some issues. Tom Edwards might have a little chat with me about giving money to George Santos. <laughs> so I decided, you know what, better not. In others, Santos-related news, because the saga does continue, so it looks like there's going to be a scandalous new film made about his rise and fall of the, of the former congressman, and it's going to be made by the person who was behind shows such as Veep and Succession. And so that's very exciting for people who are fans of those two programs. Obviously, they're political satires. It'll be interesting to see kind of what they do with the George Santos drama, because there is a lot to unpack. So much to unpack. a lot there. I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm truly stunned by somebody who has been deemed by the lawmakers of his country to be not worthy of sitting in the House, being able to turn this into a lucrative career. And that's what the question is, the moral question, I guess, for people who are going to be participating either in giving him money on Cameo or indeed watching whatever uh, programs are going to be made after him. Are we really rewarding bad behavior by these lawmakers? And, you know, let's remember that he got in trouble because of what he did with taxpayer money. And are we enabling 
enabling this process? Or is it just political satire, like other things where we are allowed to make fun of the ridiculous things that these people do? Yeah. Let's end with the British Museum, because they really have had a terrible year. <laughs> it's, it's not been great for them. I'm not going to lie. So it's been tumultuous, to say the least. After diplomatic controversies and thefts, they now have the unexpected distinction of being the number one subject of the most popular Christmas cracker jokes in a contest run by a local TV channel here in the UK called Gold. And so do you want to hear what the Christmas cracker joke is? I do. I'm not sure that it works spoken, though. You you might need to see it written down. I'm going to have to attempt. So did you hear about the Christmas cake on display in the British Museum? It was stolen. So that's, it's meant to be, did, did, did I say it? Can you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's or meant to be Stalin like the, Stollen in, yeah. in German, the, yeah. the dry fruit cake. But that is, I mean, I actually, I have to say, I also like some of the other jokes on there. I mean, I don't know if you like that one very much, but there's one about Elon Musk. Why is Elon Musk's Christmas dinner so awkward? He can't stop talking about his ex. Come on. <laughs> the one I really like, actually, is um, what impact will the 20 mile per hour speed limit in Wales have on the charts this year? Chris Rare will be driving home for Easter. <laughs> <laughs> you have to laugh. They are good. There's also Barbenheimer, Oppenheimer, Open Barbie, as we would say, also made the list with why did, what did Robert Oppenheimer get Barbie for Christmas? Atomic Kenergy. I'm going to go there. Laura, thank you very much indeed. That's all, mercifully, we have time for on this edition <laughs> of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer. Our studio manager was Callum McLean, and The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>